we cannot even fathom how powerful, how full of wisdom, how absolutely loving, how amazing you are. We've had glimpses of your glory and tastes of your goodness, and we are overwhelmed and grateful and thankful, and we love you. But we know we've just scratched the surface. I think of when you met with your people on Mount Sinai, how the place just shook. Oh, Lord, how amazing you are. We believe in you. We trust in you, and we seek you today and ask that you speak to us through your word. Increase our faith. Help us to understand a little more about faith, uh, that we might be able to serve you and glorify you better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 28 through 31, page 656 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, you just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we've been camping on this chapter, chapter 11, uh, looking at all of the different examples of faith. And today we're at, we're going to see actually four examples that show that faith trusts in and obeys God's plan. You know, there are two critical phrases in the Bible about Jesus. One is Jesus is Lord. Found everywhere. Romans 10.9 is one example. Uh, another phrase is that Jesus is the way. John 14.6 is one of those verses, okay? So Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the way. I think uh, Luke 9.23 kind of summarizes that. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what how Jesus actually presented the gospel. And uh, But notice that, follow him. He's the leader, he's the Lord, and he's the way, okay? So that's God's plan. Now, to question uh, Jesus' leadership is kind of silly, if you think about it. It's, it's actually rebellion, isn't it? To question Jesus' leadership, to question his authority over us, because Jesus is Lord. Uh, but to question God's plan is also uh, silly. Uh, it's arrogance, isn't it? Uh, uh, Jesus is the way. That's God's plan. To think that we can improve on God's plan is kind of like uh, trying to improve the Mona Lisa with a felt-tip pen. You know, what do you do with that? Give her a mustache? I, you know, see, so that we can't improve His plan. Faith trusts in and obeys God's plan. Look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28. By faith, he, speaking of Moses, instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace 
and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Now here we have four examples of how faith trusts in and obeys God's plan. So let's look at each one. Verse 28, we see obedience to God's plan rescued the Israelites from God's wrath. Verse 28 speaks of the Passover. Moses instituted the Passover, it says, in the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. A little background, what happened was Moses is about to lead the people out of Egypt. They did the 10 plagues and and this last plague was about to come, which was the killing of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so God told the Israelites, I want you to have this Passover meal where you take a lamb, you slaughter the lamb, you take the blood, you put it on the doorposts of your house, and then you have the Passover meal within your home uh, being prepared and ready to leave because he was going to lead them out uh, to uh, to freedom from the slavery in Egypt. Well, the blood on the doorpost, the slaughtering of the lamb, that was a sacrifice, and that was in order to be preserved from God's wrath. Because what God did in that 10th plague is he uh, sent the death angel who went all through Egypt and killed the firstborn of Egypt, but when he saw a house with the blood on the doorposts, he passed over that house, which is why it is called Passover. Okay, so the death angel who was sent from God to pour out his wrath upon the sins of the people, that they were protected from that wrath by faith in obeying God's command to kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts, okay? So uh, Passover is the culmination of the 10 plagues of God's wrath. And that's, so God is going to pour out, was going to pour out his wrath, but they were preserved within it. Now, fascinatingly, Passover also points to the cross. So this is an example that really points us to Jesus and his death on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it calls Jesus our Passover lamb. So he, uh, really, that pointed to the ultimate lamb of God who would be killed because of his blood, those who trust in his blood, that he shed his blood on the cross for our sins, they don't experience the wrath of God. So if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins, then we are forgiven of all our sins and we won't experience the wrath of God. Jesus experienced the wrath instead of us. While he was on the cross those six hours at one Friday, he experienced the very wrath of God. Typically, when we think of the cross, we think of how, how awful it was, the, the suffering and pain that he experienced, and rightfully so. But the greatest pain he experienced was the spiritual pain that he experienced when he took the sins of the world upon himself and then experienced the very wrath of God for those sins in our place. 
That's what Passover points to that, but that's the ultimate rescue from the wrath of God. And so as we repent of our sins, place our faith in Christ and him alone for our salvation, we outwardly express that in baptism, and that's how baptism comes in, uh, along in this whole scenario. But obedience... Uh, to God's plan, rescued the Israelites from God's wrath. And as we follow Jesus, we see we experience the same rescue. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3, kind of brings this out, verses 21 through 26. And uh, Romans, the book of Romans is a great book because the whole book describes this salvation plan of God. And uh, so if you're interested in you know, really learning more about salvation itself. You know, this this is the book that God had Paul write so that we could really understand what's going on. And uh, but I want you to look at verses twenty one through twenty six. By the way, from chapter one through three, verse twenty, he's been describing how because we're sinful, none of us can get saved by our good works. Okay, he's making a point. We're not good, but here's what verse 21 says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament predicted this. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe since there is no distinction. Notice, we're declared righteous not because of our works, but because of our faith in Christ. If we tried to get there by our works, we won't get there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Specifically, I want you to focus on verse 25. He says, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, uh, an atoning sacrifice. Uh, Hilasterion is the Greek word there. You might notice in your footnotes, it uses the word propitiation. That's the word. I want you to use that at the lunch table at work Monday, okay? Try to fit it in somehow, propitiation. So what do you think about propitiation there, Dale? You know, so you say something like that, right? Okay, so, uh, so propitiation, you got it? You got to be able to say it. <laughs> got it, okay. A propitiation, a hilasterion, was a sacrifice that allayed the wrath of God. Okay, that's what it means. It satisfied God's wrath because God is a holy and just God and must punish sin, but he's also a loving God and wants to forgive, but he's not just going to overlook. So a price needed to be paid. Well, Jesus paid the price for us. That's a hilasterion, a propitiation. Okay, so uh, so we see that uh, First Thessalonians one verse ten also speaks of how uh, God 
came to uh, rescue us from the wrath to come. Ultimately, when Jesus returns, he's going to pour out his wrath upon the earth, just like he poured out his wrath upon the Egyptians in the passage uh, in, in the book of Exodus that our verse is referring to, okay? So, but obedience to God's plan, meaning following his plan, rescued the Israelites from God's wrath. Now, we also see in verse 29, the second example, obedience to God's plan rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh's wrath, okay? Look at verse, back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Okay, so he's picking up the story. Moses, they had the Passover. Then they got up in the middle of the night and they left, all right? And they went and they were, they were leaving and then they got to the Red Sea. And there, the Egyptians decided, Pharaoh said, hey, wait a minute, we're going to lose all this free labor. Let's go back and get them. So he sends his army to go get them. God puts this pillar of fire in between them so it keeps them from there. And then God causes the Red Sea to split wide open in the The Israelites walked across on dry land. Once they got over, the fire, pillar fire goes away. The Pharaoh's army goes after them. Then God puts the water back on them and kills them. All right? Now, that took some faith to cross on dry land, didn't it? Okay, so that's the picture here, why he's mentioning this as an act of faith. The Israelites, kind of interesting, the very next example of faith is Jericho, which is like 40 years later because the Israelites from in between this time and that time didn't, were not examples of faith. They were examples of unbelief, constantly grumbling, murmuring, and complaining, tragically, sadly, right? But here is an act of faith that we see where trusting in God's plan, following him, saved them from Pharaoh's wrath. Pharaoh wanted to kill or bring them back. He wanted to, to, to attack them. But God performed a miracle. See, God does perform miracles. It's kind of interesting when you look at the Psalms. If you read the Psalms, they are several places they will praise God by saying something like, you are the God who caused the sea to dry up and let your people walk across on dry land. So they use those miraculous events, and specifically this miraculous event, to praise God, okay? Because God did that great miracle. But they did it in such a way that they would say, so God, do it again, All right? I mean, that's what you see. In fact, look at uh, Jeremiah 32, 20. I'm going to give you three verses that kind of say this same thing. Jeremiah 32, 20. And I want you to, I want to show these three verses that show basically do it again because I want you to pray like that, okay? God, do it again. All right? Look at what he says in verse 20, uh, you performed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and still do today, both in Israel and among all mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case today. You did miracles back then, and you still do them today. That's what Jeremiah said. Look at 
what's the next one? Habakkuk 3 2. It's one of my favorites. Habakkuk. Oops, went too far. Habakkuk 3, verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. In other words, do it again, God. Okay, that's what he's praying. Do it again, God. Look at, uh, what's the next one? Psalm 144, verse 5. Psalm 144, verse 5. Another prayer. Lord, part your heavens and come down. Touch the mountains and they will smoke. Flash your lightning and scatter the foe. See, he's, he's looking back at Mount Sinai. This is a similar description to what God did. He touched the mountain and it smoked, okay? He came down. And that's this prayer. Lord, part the heavens and come down. Do it again. That's what he's saying. And and so we pray, Father, do it again. You're awesome. You're almighty. Do your miracles again. When I was preparing this message, I was reminded of uh, an instance in Orlando when I was pastor there. And we were, uh, got a phone call from a uh, uh, husband and his wife. Their son, young man, had been beaten almost to death by a baseball bat because he was in a place he shouldn't have been, all right? <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. And they asked, they said, he's in a coma. Doctors are not giving him any hope at all. Would you please come and pray for him? And they were from the south south part of Florida, so they weren't from there, but they called you know, our church, and I said, sure. So we went down, and we prayed for this uh, young man who was just, it looked awful. And, uh, but we prayed for him, and right after that, he woke up, and within just a couple days, he was out of the hospital and fine, okay? And, and there's no way that was just a coincidence. It was a miracle that we got to participate in, okay? And we don't get to do anything. We don't have any, you don't have any strength or power, right? Only God does, but when we ask him, sometimes... He does it again, <laughs> okay? And he gets glory, right? That's, that's what we're praying here. That's what we want to see uh, because, and, and the next point that I want to make here is God is on the side of the righteous. I want you to look at Psalm 1. And, and this doesn't mean on the side of the person who's perfect because none of us are perfect, right? The righteous were the people who were in covenant faith with God as his people. That's the the, those people were declared the righteous, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Look at Psalm chapter 1. We see, uh, the, and this is the beginning of the Psalms. Most uh, scholars believe that this was placed here 
uh, as an introduction to the whole book. And it really does, these themes come out throughout the rest of the Psalms. And here's what it says. It says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit on in the company of mockers. Now notice there, he's really giving us a pattern. First walking, then standing, then sitting. Okay, you're first casually walking, listening to, you know, the ways of the sinners. And then you kind of stop and you're standing there. So you're getting a little more involved. And then you're just sitting down comfortable in the ways of the wicked. He says, bad. (laughs) You see that? Okay. How happy is the one who doesn't do that? Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. Torah is the Hebrew word there. It's referring to God's book, the Bible. Right? How happy is the one who uh, delights in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night, which is why, as a church, we're reading the Bible together all the way through from Genesis to Revelation this year, okay? If you haven't started, you still can. It's a real simple plan. Read 15 minutes a day. Start in Genesis, finish in Revelation, (laughs) okay? But time yourself. Start the clock, read 15 minutes, and then ponder what you read the rest of the day, okay? So, at any rate, uh, oh, here we go, keep on going. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers. Now, this is not a promise that everything's always going to go right in your life. We live in a messed up world and bad things happen to everybody, okay? But this is a principle. As you live in accordance to God's word, he does bear fruit from that. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. God is on the side of the righteous, and sometimes he does really cool stuff in our lives when we ask him, okay? So obedience to God's plan rescued the Israelites from Pharaoh's wrath. The third illustration we see in verse 30 of Hebrews 11, obedience to God's plan sometimes doesn't seem to make sense. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. If you remember the story in Joshua, the Israelites were told by God to go to Jericho. That's the first city of the Canaanites that they were supposed to attack. It was a fortified city with a giant wall around it. And they were supposed to march around the wall once every day silently for six days. And on the seventh day, march around seven times. And at the end, shout and blow the trumpets and the walls would come down. Now, that's not probably normally the best military strategy you could come up with, right? Okay. Um, how many of you have read the, uh, the book uh, by Sun Tzu, The Art of War? One, two, only two? You've got to be kidding me. It's a short book. It's 
actually fascinating. I'm three. I read it. Yeah, right? It was good, wasn't it? I mean, it was fascinating. You don't see this strategy in there, do you? No. You know, because if you're marching around the walls, they're going to shoot you with the arrows off the walls. I mean, that's, that's it's not all that bright unless you know something. If God says, this is how I want you to take this city, that's how you take the city, right? Okay, and so we see this this uh, strategy here. Now, now, right after that, it's kind of fascinating. The next city they attacked was I. Okay, that city, God actually gave them a brilliant strategy. Have some people behind the city waiting in ambush and then lure them out. And once they lure out to come and attack you, you run away and then they think they've got you. So they all come out of the city and then from the behind attack them. Ambush. That's in the book, isn't it? It's in the book, right? Okay. So, so, uh, that's brilliant strategy. Uh, so sometimes God expects us to use wisdom. Other times he wants us to simply follow his lead, but he always calls us to go by the book. Not the art of war, the book, God's word. And then we will see him come through. Uh, in uh, uh, When we look at this case, one of the things I just want to mention briefly is archaeology backs up this unlikely event. If we had time, we could go into how there have been four major digs of Jericho uh, for in archaeological digs, and in all four, they discovered the basic, same basic things, that first of all, the walls fell down, and it looks like they, they, they didn't fall in such a way that they were attacked by battering rams or something like that. They simply fell down, and so all four said, none of these groups were Christian, by the way, all four groups uh, of archaeologists said it must have been an earthquake. So the walls came down by an earthquake. Secondly, they also found that the city had been burned. Third, they found grain underneath the rubble, lots of grain which is actually very foolish. If you attack a city, the grain was like gold back then. You would want to take the grain for yourself. So why was there a bunch of grain there? Because in the book of Joshua, it specifically says, the walls will come down, burn the city, leave everything there, because that's an offering to me. And so they did. But we see this archaeologically. It all backs up. Now, by the way, to just happen to have an earthquake happen right at the time when you're attacking is pretty pretty coincidental, don't you think? Okay. Well, but that's what they discovered, okay, in these archaeological digs. So archaeology backs up this likely event. And the second point I want to mention here is always use the right weapons, okay? From the Old Testament, we see this military strategy, and God was using them to take this land. But we know from a New Testament perspective, God wants us to see our real enemy is not the physical human beings, but rather our real enemy is the spiritual realm, Satan and his demons. And so we don't fight with physical weapons. We fight with spiritual weapons. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, and we see this pointed out clearly by Paul. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, it says, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. 
since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our weapons are not carnal. They are spiritual and mighty and destroy the spiritual strongholds that are holding us back, okay? So we can learn that lesson uh, from Joshua. Now, the last example in Hebrews chapter 11, we see that obedience to God's plan is sometimes risky and dangerous. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Now, when the Israelites attacked Jericho, before they attacked Jericho, two spies went in to scout the place out, right? And Rahab protected them. Now, she was one of the Canaanites. She was one of the bad guys, but she recognized that Yahweh was the true God, and so she placed her faith in Yahweh and showed that faith by protecting these two spies, and she was rescued. She was saved. You see, God didn't just hate all Canaanites. He wasn't a racist. Anyone who would have repented would have been completely forgiven, and saved. And that's what we see in Rahab, this great example. Rahab, and we want to make sure we understand, Rahab was saved by grace. It actually says in our passage, she was a prostitute. Okay? Um, so she didn't come to God thinking she earned his favor. Right? A great question to ask people is if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? That's a great question to ask people because their answer will reveal what they're trusting in. If they say, well, I'm a pretty good person and I kind of hope I'll get in, they're trusting in their own works, aren't they? And they're not going to get in because none of us are good enough. But if they say, you know what, I've recognized that I'm a sinner And so, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay uh, for my sins, and I've put my faith in him, and I'm trusting in Christ. That's a believer, right? Okay, so, so, and that was Rahab. Rahab um, uh, trusted in uh, this true God. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast, right? Well, let's look at this passage, Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, just to see her declaration of faith. Kind of interesting because it, it reveals that all of the Canaanites were afraid, but only she truly put her trust in Yahweh. Look at Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. It says, before the men fell asleep, that's the two spies, 
She went up on the roof, that's where she hid them, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, all capital letters there, right? That's Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord, Yahweh. For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Notice her declaration of faith. And, uh, and God saw that and preserved her and kept her and her family safe. Often, the really bad sinners get saved because they know they are sinners. Others think they're somehow good enough to get in, and none of us are. No one is good enough. I think of my own life, the things that I've done in the past, horrible things. I absolutely don't deserve God's grace, but he's full of mercy. No matter what you've done, she was a pagan prostitute and God completely forgave her. Now Rahab was saved by grace, but Rahab was saved unto good works. Okay, we're saved by grace alone, but God has a plan for each of us. And that's what we see in Rahab. In fact, she's spoken of about this in James chapter 2. She's mentioned in James. So look at James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Specifically, uh, James is using these illustrations of how faith without works is dead. Listen to what he says. He says, in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, we talked about this last week as well, but I just want to point this out. She was an example that real faith changes us where we want to follow God and works are the inevitable fruit or result of that. By the way, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I already quoted verses 8 and 9, but I think it's helpful to see how that section ends. Because in verses 8 and 9, he says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So we're not saved by our works at all, right? But look what he goes on to say. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. He has a plan for every one of us. He, he's calling us. You're saved by grace, okay? I'm going to transform you from the inside out, and then I'm going to send you out. I've got work for you to do. Rahab recognized that because hers was a real faith, and she risked her own life to protect those two spies, didn't she? Ended up coming out pretty good for her. Right? She's saved. The rest of them aren't. But she risked her life. That's why I'm, my point is obedience to God's plan is sometimes risky and dangerous. But Rahab, her faith changed the course of history. Now, we've already come across a couple genealogies in our reading in Genesis, haven't we? And Exodus, right? 
Okay, those of you who are reading with us. How many of you enjoy reading the genealogies? Well, let's go ahead and read another one, all right? Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And I know since you're so fascinated with the genealogies, I thought we'd read another one. Uh, By the way, I do give you permission if you would like, when you come across the genealogy, to go ahead and skip it, <laughs> okay? You, you don't, there's not spiritual brownie points for reading every name, okay? But the point that it's there is what's very important, and let me show you why. Look at this genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was father, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. This is exciting, isn't it? Okay. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Did you see that? There she is. She's in the book. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. Look at it, it goes on. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And then it goes on, and we see that ultimately Jesus. She's in the line of Jesus. If she wouldn't have stepped out in this faith, (laughs) right? She's in the very line of Jesus. And you can play it safe in life or be a history maker. I want to play a video. It's a little long, but that's okay. But we're going to conclude with this. I want you to watch this because I hope it challenges your faith to where you step out and become a history maker as well. So much instability, so much that we don't understand, that we don't know. For me, growing up, it was, a lot of you guys know, my mom died giving birth to me. And my dad remarried. Then my stepmom died in a car accident when I was nine. Then my dad got married again. Then my dad died of cancer when I was 12. And so I'm in junior high, my mom's dead, my stepmom's dead, my dad's dead. The only close relatives I had were my, my aunt and uncle, George and Sandra. And then when I was in high school, they got in a fight, and my uncle George shot and killed my aunt, and then stuck the gun to his own head, killed himself. So I'm 16 years old, and this is life to me, going, man, what's next? Everything seems to be falling apart, and we get a little worried, we get a little scared, and this is what Christians do. You know, they try to serve God, but then things get a little rocky. And things get a little unstable. And so we go, okay, that was nuts. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to live like that. Let me, uh, let me hold on. And this is your routine. This is what so many people do. They go, you know what? I'm not going to try anything crazy. I'm just going to sit here. And uh, I'm just going to hold on. And uh, this is what you look like. You just go... Uh, this is what people do. You know what? I'm just going to have my nice little family. We're just going to, um, you know, we're just going to keep to ourselves. We're going to live in a gated community. I'm going to homeschool my kids, make them wear helmets everywhere. I'm going to, um, you know, I'm not going to let them outside because sun has bad rays. I'm going to, um, you know, just on and on and on. And you just live your life in the safety of I don't want to do anything crazy for God. I just... I just want to, you know, go to church on Sundays and maybe give like 2% um, and uh, maybe serve, help the nursery because I feel guilty. And then you do this your whole life and then you, you go, your greatest prayer is like, God, you know what? I would love to die in my sleep and not even feel it. 
and then just go up to heaven. And so you want to die like this, just in your sleep, ooh, right in the middle of a dream, good dream, the dream you're going to heaven and you don't even feel it. And then suddenly you wake up, you stand before the judge and you go. <laughs> now, if... Uh, Could you imagine, could you imagine watching the Olympics, you know, and some girl does that, just gets up there, starts straddling the thing, and then steps off and goes, <laughs> what is the judge supposed to do on the card? You see, and to me, I go, man, that's the routine that so many Christians are headed for. That's the routine, the boring, I do nothing crazy because I don't want to fall. I, I, that's the routine that they're going to live, and then one day it's going to be a shock because they're going to step off that balance beam and realize they're standing before the judge. They're standing before the judge, and you think he's going to look at that routine and go, wow, well done. Well done. You live the safest life possible. You didn't slip, you didn't fall. See, that's not the life that God's called us to. That's where the majority will head. But I don't want to go where the majority goes.